Amen. Thank you, Marilyn. Just a quick poll. Raise your hand if today was the first time you've ever sung What Air My God Ordains is Right. Raise your hand. Uh, that makes sense. Okay, I could hear us struggling to find the tunes, so we will do it again. Uh, it's an extremely uh, good song uh, written by a Christian philosopher in 1675, uh, so it wasn't written yesterday. Uh, what a joy to be with you all. Our main text this morning will be from Genesis chapter 50, as Marilyn read. What about now? I'm not going to move for the next <laughs> however long. How about now? All right. Walking in God's providence. That's the title of our sermon today. Walking in God's providence. Why were you born to the parents that you were born to instead of someone else? Where were you born? Think of the worst possible accident that happened to you maybe in your childhood or even in recent years. Why wasn't it worse? We're approaching 8 billion people on the earth. Why is it that you were planted around these people and your family and the places that you've been? We do have a choice of friends who we choose, but we don't have seven billion people to choose from. We have a very limited number of people that we will ever possibly meet in our short time on earth. Bring this a little bit closer to home, what's going on around us now. Why is it that you and I and we were born during the time of COVID-19? Of all the times in history, this is, this is our time. How did you get to be in a nation where the president wants to pay individuals $100 to get the vaccine, while other people in other nations would beg for the pleasure to buy it? How did we get here? Why well, have some healthy young people passed away from COVID-19? And others who are older and sick passed away. You could ask, why is it so bad? We could ask, why is it not worse? Just think about the testimony of some of our church members' lives. We've had members lose family members recently, some even due to COVID. Had church members lose babies. Had church members lose their eyesight. Some members got cancer and moved on. Some members have passed away suddenly. Some members have plenty of children. Some members seem unable to have children. One of our members' daughters got hit by a car many years ago, miraculously surviving. Some members have left the faith. Some have persevered in Christ despite deep sorrow and loss. Some are wealthy. Some are less so. Every single day, we're walking in an orchestra of big life-determining events or circumstances and little small events that happen every day, things about which we can do nothing to control. Nothing. Things which are God's sovereign providence. 
Yet at the same time, every day, we are responsible for how we live our lives as we walk in whatever God's providence is for us. We make real decisions in our hearts and in our minds about what we will do with our lives as we walk in God's providence. How should we think? How do we walk? How do we live in God's providence? Today, I really just want us to do these two things together. Look at our lives according to the Bible and see how do we understand God's providence? What is God doing and how does God do things? And how do we walk in God's providence? How do we live in whatever God's providence for our our lives might be? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning, that what is in your word would be the word this morning. That what we hear is uh, not from men, not men's ideals, but that we leave here having sung and prayed as we have read aloud your word so that we might leave knowing what you say, how you work, what you do, that we might in turn respond to you in faith and in obedience, trust and love. Father, in all the ways that we need to repent from sin, from trusting in our own sovereignty, would you help us to repent? In all the ways we need to continue forward, pressing in faithfulness, Despite difficult providence, would you help us do that today? We love you, Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to put all my cards on the table here. This sermon has partly arisen out of my own pleasure and enjoyment in wrestling with uh, the providence of God on a theological level for the past uh, several months as I read as slowly as humanly possible through a book called Providence by Pastor John Piper. It's a big, thick book. I don't think it's even meant to be read through, uh, which is why it's taking me uh, so long. But the reason I've chosen to bring up this topic today is just I feel that it will be helpful for many of us in many of our circumstances, and it will be helpful for us as a church in regards to some of our church circumstances. And I want you to be encouraged with God's providence and what He is doing in it and what our part in it is. I want to first define God's providence. What is God's providence? I'm going to let Piper explain with his definition from his book. I'll read it slowly so we can try to catch up and stay with him. In reference to God, he says, the word providence does not occur in most versions of the Bible, the ESV, the KGV, the HCSB, or the NRSV. It's difficult to be certain about the history of the word and why it came to carry its present meaning. But here is a suggestion. We have it, we have in it an English idiom that goes like this. I'll see to it. Like all idioms, it means more than the words. Taking individually, they seem to signify. I'll see to it in English means I'll take care of it, which is an idiom itself. I'll provide for it. I'll see or make sure that it happens. 
So it could be that putting the Latin vide, see, together with Latin pro, to or toward, it's come to mean more than simply foresee, foresee something in the future. But providence means see to it, see to it. That would be what we mean by God's providence. He sees to it that things happen in a certain way. Providence being, he sees to it that things happen in a certain way. There's a lot of places in the Bible that it says this succinctly and in short descriptive sentences. A helpful one is Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. 46 of Isaiah 8 through 10. God says to his people, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying all along, God says, I've been saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. So you have God saying in so many words, I have a purpose that is my counsel and I'm going to accomplish it on the earth. This means that God is active in the lives, in the events, and the happenings of men. God will accomplish his purpose on the earth. God will accomplish his purposes in the suffering of Israel. What they were about to endure is what Isaiah is talking about. God's going to accomplish his purpose in choosing Israel in the first place. God says he will accomplish all his purpose. There is not one thing that God intends that he does not personally see to it. He sees to it. I don't know about you, but one of the things I severely underestimated about owning a home was the amount of things I was going to have to see too. The list grows faster than I can see to it. God will, I'm gonna sell my house one day and my see to it list will not be done. Someone else is gonna have to see to it after me. God will accomplish all his purpose. He will do it. In the end, God will have no unaccomplished purposes. We are living in God's world. God has a purpose, a why for the world, and God will accomplish all his purposes. This is what providence is, the invisible creator God accomplishing his purposes in the world that he created. God created a world having purposes for this world, and he sees to it that his purposes are accomplished. 
So what we're going to be looking at today is how do we walk in a world where God is accomplishing His purposes, even through the lives of men and women sovereignly overseeing and orchestrating providentially their lives, and we'll see this morning, even their wills. We're going to look at two examples this morning, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, to see God's providential purpose accomplishment at work, the one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. Then we're just going to stop and say, what are some truths, some things that we can believe and remember because of this? And then finally, what are some things we do? How do we, how do we live? How do we walk in light of those things? Two central examples of God's providence in the Bible. First in the Old Testament is Joseph. Joseph. Joseph is the great-grandson of the first man of the people of Israel, Abraham. He goes, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and he actually had 12 sons who all would become the 12 tribes of of Israel. In your memory, Joseph may seem like a fairly small character, but the span of Joseph's life takes up more of the book of Genesis than any other. Genesis is 50 chapters long. Joseph's birth is recorded in Genesis chapter 30, verse 24, and the rest of the book of Genesis, almost half of the post-garden narrative in Genesis, follows Joseph's life. The book of Genesis ends with this profound foreshadowing. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. If your Bibles are open, you're looking at Exodus, you don't have to see how foreshadowing it is that the last word in the book of Genesis is Egypt. Now, what did Genesis mean to its first readers? The Bible points towards Moses as the author of Genesis, having written down the law according as it was given to him by the Lord, which he gave to the priest. This would have included as part of the law the book of Genesis. This means that when Genesis first comes on the scene, it's when God's people are still trying to figure out exactly who God is. Israel really knew very little about Yahweh when he led them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. Understand, Genesis is not just a narrative. It's not just genealogies. It's not just technical covenant terms. It's theology. That is, it is about God. Genesis teaches God's people about God. Long story short for Joseph, Joseph's life is not just there for history. It's the authoritative record 
of how God accomplishes his purposes. If you read through the Old Testament, you will find the characters in the stories are actually speaking theology to the generations to come. It's not only the events. There's a rhythm in biblical narrative. So we'll see something like this. You'll see story, events, story, and then a character will speak or get into a dialogue more story, more events, and then speech. And what we often find is that the speeches and the songs and the poems that are tucked into the narrative give us the theology that those narratives are trying to produce for us, the truth about God from that narrative. You'll see some examples, for example, quick example, Exodus chapter 15. Right after they are led through the Red Sea. Or right after they're led out of Egypt, what happens? What does Moses do? We get Moses' song. And if you read Moses' song, it's a theological proclamation about the power of God, which is what's been happening for 15 chapters before. See the same thing in Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel. It's a theological introduction to the book. It's not just a prayer, it's a, it's a theological introduction. So we see Joseph's life is intended to give us something about God. Some quick background about Joseph. I'm about to summarize 20 chapters of the book of Genesis really quickly. Joseph was Jacob's favorite. He was daddy's little boy born in his old age. We see this in Genesis 37 verse 3. Because of this, Joseph's brothers despised him. On top of this, Joseph had some dreams about cornstalks and the stars and the moons, which made it look like he was going to be elevated up above his brothers. So his brothers despised him even more. Joseph's brothers, then the other 11, conspired against Joseph, threw him into a hole, and told their father he's been eaten by wild beasts, leaving him to die. Not wanting to miss an opportunity to make an extra buck, there's a caravan coming through town. The brothers see the caravan. They think, let's actually get him out of the hole. We will sell him to the caravan of Ishmaelites. We'll sell him as a slave. We'll make some money off of him while we fake his death. So Joseph is sold into slavery and gets taken into Egypt, and through a series of really inconceivable events, Joseph becomes the second in command in Egypt, second in command only to Pharaoh himself. And this is what happens next in the book of Genesis. Wouldn't you know that in the meantime, all of Joseph's brothers back home with dad and Jacob end up experiencing a deadly famine. No food. Where could they possibly go? Where could Jacob and his children possibly go to get food? Egypt. The powerful empire of the Egyptians can help get us some food. 
they come to find their little brother, second in command, to the brother they left in a hole and then sold to slavery. They meet him again when they come to get food. And it ends up being really good for Joseph's brothers. Look how good it is in Genesis chapter 45, verse 17 through 20. Genesis 45, verse 17 through 20. For a, a time, Joseph hides his identity from his brothers, looking like an Egyptian, acting like an Egyptian. They don't notice him at first. But look what happens when Pharaoh realizes Joseph's brothers are in town and they're hungry. Genesis 45, verse 17 through 20, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load up your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. Now, that's a, that's a good thing, the fat of the land. That, that's like Franklin's brisket. We do it just right. Fat is important part, right? And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take the wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives. Not just for you guys, go feed the whole family and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. God turned their selling their brother into a feast during famine. But the great theological conclusion about what God is doing, how God was faithful to Jacob and watching over him, keeping covenant with him, is in Genesis chapter 50. Once it's realized that their dad, Jacob, is dead back home, the brothers are terrified. Our little brother Joseph is second in command in Egypt. He has every right and reason to kill us all. Dad's not around to be bothered by it. No one in Egypt's going to blink an eye when he kills some, some nomads. He's going to kill us. But that's not what Joseph says. Look in Genesis chapter 50, verse 15 through 21. Genesis 50, part of what Marilyn read for us, his brothers also came and they fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Here it is, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now we're not going to make too many conclusions just yet, but make sure you take this with you. Joseph said, you tried to kill me. God used your trying to kill, kill me to keep you alive. You had your purposes. God was accomplishing all his purposes through your purposes. You meant evil. God, through his providential accomplishments, meant his purposes, meant good. 
That is what the last 20 chapters of Genesis are about. What you meant for evil, God meant the very same thing for good, which is extremely profound, being that the last word in Genesis is that we are all going to Egypt. That's Joseph. What you brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. A deep, heavy theological anchor in the book of Genesis. Now let's look to the New Testament and let's look to Jesus Christ himself. Jesus was sent by God to accomplish the purpose of God. All God's purposes go in and through Christ. All of them. Remember Colossians 1.16, all things are by, through, and for Christ. What is God's purpose in Christ? It's to save sinners like me and like you from the wrath that we deserve. Christ came to be slain as a sacrifice for sinners. We deserve death. We deserve damnation. God sent Christ to suffer for us, absolving God's wrath so that we might be forgiven by his blood shed for our sin. That's what it meant for Jesus to die on the cross. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of sin. His righteousness was laid down for our unrighteousness to be cleansed. Jesus paid for our sin, not only by dying, but by defeating death itself. Through death, he defeated death, and then he rose from the grave so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In other words, not to die forever. In other words, not to have to live under the rule of sin in our lives now. But I want us to see that Jesus dying on the cross is the paramount way that God sees to his purpose in mankind. His providential seeing to it, even through sinful mankind, so that mankind does not have to go to hell, judged for all eternity. God did that. God sent Christ to the cross. God planned for Jesus to die on the cross. God orchestrated the events that sent Jesus to the cross. On the night before, Jesus prayed if there was another way, and God said there is no other way. When Jesus died on the cross, it was not only something that was happening to Jesus, but when Jesus died on the cross, it was something that God was providentially seeing to for sinners. And God, being the one who accomplishes all his purposes, is all over the New Testament as part of the good news for sinners. Think about this. Who killed Jesus Christ? Well, we just said that it was chiefly God. Jesus dying on the cross was God's purpose, God's way to save mankind and ultimately fulfill his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. But like it was in Joseph's life, God does this providentially. He sees to it through the decisions even of other men. At the time of Jesus' death, Israel, like all Jacob's descendants, all of Jacob's descendants at the time, were under the power of Roman rule. And one of the laws of Rome at the time was that only Rome had the power 
of execution. If the Jews wanted someone executed according to their laws, they would need to make their case to Rome and let Rome take that person, and in this case in particular, Pilate, so that Pilate could see them executed. This is what happened with Jesus. The chief priests and the officials brought charges against Jesus. They brought Jesus to the Romans so that the Romans could crucify him. But watch in the book of John. There's multiple places we could go, but go in the book of John with me for a moment. John 19, verse 10 through 11. John 19, verse 10 through 11. And Jesus is in this Roman trial. Pilate is kind of half trying to give Jesus a way out here. Look what Jesus says, a short version here, John 19, 10 through 11. Pilate says to Jesus, who was being silent up to this point, will you not speak to me? And listen to what Pilate says to Jesus. Do you not know that I have the authority? Pilate is laying it down. I've got the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you. If I were you, I would speak up. Say something. I'm about to exercise my power to crucify you, Jesus. Here's Jesus' answer. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus looked the Roman governor in the eye, the man who was about to give the word for him to be crucified, and said, I know God gave you this authority. I know that God is accomplishing his purposes in giving you this authority. If God did not want you to accomplish the thing that you are thinking you're accomplishing, God would not have given you this power. But God is somehow accomplishing his power through his plan, his purposes through Pilate. And Jesus knows it. The disciples in the book of Acts remember it like this. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand predestined to take place. Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel are just doing what God's providential purposes ordained. That's it. That's why it happened like that. So we have to think about it like this. Who was responsible for Jesus' death at the hand of the Romans? Was it the Jews? Yes. Was it Herod? Yes. Was it Pilate? Yes. Was it God? Yes. He is superseding their own desires by his sovereign providential seeing to it that Christ would be crucified as a lamb slain for sinners. That's providence. And it is the way the gospel comes to us. God seeing to his purposes on the earth 
in the events of God, of, excuse me, of mankind. God seeing to his purposes on the earth in the events of mankind. Three quick truths about God's providence, and then how do we walk in such a providence where God acts like this? I think one of Piper's most helpful statements to me over the years that gave me some theological clarity is just saying what is so simple and so kind of duh once you say it out loud. First thing, there can be two wills behind one action. In God's providence, the way he works, the way the world is orchestrated under God, there can be two wills behind one action. We see this in Joseph. Joseph meant his brothers meant bad things. Joseph's brothers meant bad things, but through the very same events where his brothers really did mean bad things, God meant good things. The very actions Joseph's brothers meant, the very actions Pilate meant, God meant those very same actions for good. The worst possible thing mankind has ever done, crucifying the Son of God, God meant as the very best possible thing God could do for mankind. There are two wills behind the actions of men. Men's will to do their own wicked thing and somehow, wonderfully, God's will to do a good thing behind the very same event, the, with the very same action. I think that it might sound like this creates theological problems, creates theological questions, and it actually puts you in a place of conundrum, but I think it actually answers the questions if we'll let it. The problem is this. How can we say that God is sovereign if man does one thing and God seems to be doing another thing? The alternative is that God is out of control. God has neither the power. God does not have the will to be intervening into men's actions and their wills and their going about on the earth. But if there are two wills behind one action, if God means for good what men meant for evil, then we have a sovereign, providential God working even sovereignly through sin. Second thing, God can obviously bring good from bad people doing bad things. God can bring good through and from bad people doing bad things. This is true in Joseph and Jesus' life. God's not taken back. God's not surprised or he's not confused by bad people doing bad things. God's sovereignty is not limited simply to natural disasters or diseases or accidents or creation. That too. But God is providentially working through the things that other people do. God's seeing to his plan through bad people doing bad things. Does this mean that the bad things that people are doing are really good things? No. If you want to study this some more, think about this. Just go look at Romans chapter 9 through 11. Let your curiosity be confronted. We're seeing things here is that God's providence is not just painting with kind of the pastel colors, but God works through dark purples and black and dark reds. He works through sin. He works through sinful men's intentions even to bring about good things. God can bring good things from bad people doing bad things. Number three, we are in God's providence, not fate. We live in a world run by God's providence, not given over to fate. 
Providence is God seeing to accomplishing his purpose. It's not the same as fate. In his book, Providence, Piper reminds us what Charles Spurgeon once said about fate and providence. Speaking on the subject, Charles Spurgeon said, you will say this morning that our minister is a fatalist. Spurgeon says, your minister is no such thing. Some will say, oh, we, he believes in fate. He does not believe in fate at all. What is fate? Fate is this. Fate is whatever is must be. There's a difference between that and providence. There is all the difference between fate and providence that there is between a man with good eyes and a blind man. Fate is a blind thing. It is the avalanche crushing the village down below and destroying thousands with no plan or concern. Providence is not an avalanche. It's a rolling river rippling at first like a rill down the sides of a mountain, followed by minor streams until it rolls into the broad ocean of everlasting love, working for the good of the human race. Fate is things happen, just are. Providence is there is a God doing something with everything that happens. What's our relationship to God's providence in our lives? It's not fate. It's more wonderful, more amazing than fate. God has a purpose. He is actively alive, moving in the world, and we are a part of it for his purposes. It's not fate. Proverbs 19.21 says like this, Many are the plans in the mind of man. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Things are not just the way they are because that's the way they're going to be. Don't ever say that about yourself or anyone else. God's purposes are being accomplished. Let's think now about walking in God's providence. If these things are so, there can be two wheels behind one action. God can bring good things from bad people doing bad things. And we're walking in God's providence, not in fate. How do we walk in God's providence? What do we do? do? First thing, walk in what purposes you know. Walk in the purposes that you know. Now, I'll make this really quick. When I was in college, one of the reasons I quote John Piper so much over the years and even today is when I was in college, one of my ministry professors said every One of us as students, uh, potential pastors, should pick an author, a a living author uh, and pastor, and just read everything they write, listen to everything they preach, um, learn to chew up and spit out what you don't agree with, watch, learn their their best, their worst. I really wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking about wakeboarding at the boat with my girlfriend. I just wasn't a thought in my mind. But I heard a sermon by John Piper in college, and it put me on to... Uh, some things I'd never considered. And since then, that's exactly what I've been doing, trying to read as much of his stuff and listen as I can. One of the things I've seen over the years is Piper dealing with the language of God's providence and and sovereignty. Uh, His life work, he was hoping, would be a book about sovereignty and ended up being about providence. But he deals with the relationship between man's sovereignty and, or God's sovereignty and man's responsibility And I think he does so in a helpful way here uh, in this sentence in his most recent book. He says, providence is all-embracing and all-pervasive. 
But when God turns the human will, there is a mystery that it causes a person to experience God's turning as his own preference, an authentic, responsible act of the human will. God is sovereign over man's preferences, their choices. Man is accountable for his preferences. God's hidden hand in turning all things and his revealed commands requiring all obedience are in perfect harmony. So listen, God's hidden hand in turning all things and his revealed commands requiring obedience are in perfect harmony in the mind of God, but not in our visible experience. We are obliged to follow his revealed precepts, not his secret purposes. We are obliged to follow his revealed precepts, not his secret purposes. Now, I read it from him because I think he says it better than I could, and I would try to make it up, and it probably wouldn't sound as good. We cannot know God's secret providential plans. How is God going to, occur, going to accomplish all his purposes for the church in this age? We cannot know. What can we know? What we can know is to do what Joseph did. What we can know is to do what Jesus did, which is walk in what we know. We know God calls his people to be holy. So Joseph fled Potiphar's wife. We know God calls us to trust in him. And when he says to do something, that our good is in it. So Jesus did not call town 10,000 angels to save him from the cross. We're not God. Friends, sometimes it's really good to look ourselves in the mirror and say, you ain't God. I'm not him. I don't know all the things. I don't know what God's doing in my life. God knows things about my life and my past and my present and my future that I will never maybe know. We get so worried, so anxious, so discouraged thinking we know what God is doing in any given circumstance. But we don't. See Joseph, see Christ. Walk in what you know. God has commanded us. He has revealed his precepts to the church to spread the gospel like seeds everywhere we go. It is ours to speak grace, to build up, not to tear it down. It's ours to forgive as others to as forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. It's ours to be patient, not to return evil with evil. It's ours to give to the church and the mission generously. It's ours to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit. It's ours to help each other mature into the fullness of Christ, even if we don't understand how those things might bear fruit or work in any given moment. This is what Joseph did. It's what Christ did. Walk in accordance with what God has revealed to you and leave to us in his word. Leave what providence he has prescribed for our lives to him. 
When we go out into the world and we see a man stuck in a ditch, this is totally just, we don't see people stuck in ditches anymore, but track with me here. We, we see someone in need. We don't need to stop and pray, God, would you just help me know your will for my life? Help me know if it's your will for me to help this man. Uh, yeah, it is. Because Jesus told us to love your neighbor as yourself. We don't have to wonder what God wants us to do when he put us on a road with this guy. We don't have to wonder. He's already told us. The reason that we're around the people that we are, that we've lost jobs and gotten jobs and moved, that we were born here, that we were these friends, that we're, we're, we're with these family members, because God's given us the things to do. He's revealed ways for us to live in those places and go and do those things. And we don't have to worry about what's not happening. We don't have to worry about what's supposed, supposed to be happening. It'd be really easy for Joseph to think, God, I just didn't think prison was supposed to happen. And here we are. But it was supposed to happen. Because God meant it for good. So quit, quit judging all of our circumstances. If we know what's going on, just do what we know God has revealed for us to do. The second thing is remind each other of God's providence. Look in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 105, just as an example. Remind each other of God's providences. When we give each other counsel, we ought to be giving each other counsel in our life groups, in our personal friendship, in our prayer time together. We ought to be helping one another. Quit saying stuff we don't know is true. Quit giving each other promises about things working out in certain timelines. And God's going to turn this certain situation around this way. You don't know. Quit saying that. Point people to the way God providentially works in all things. And let it sit there. Look at Psalm chapter 105, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. This begins like a lot of psalms. Make known what God has done. Remember God. Tell, tell what God is like. The next verse goes on to talk about all the works that God has done. And look in chapter 105, verse 16 through 24. What has God done? Remember what God did with Joseph. Remember how God worked in Joseph's life. Take the theological anchor of Joseph's providential part in God's plan and remind the nations that that's how God works, much less you and your own church. Psalm 105, verse 16 through 20. Remember this, tell the nations this, when he summoned a famine on the land. By the way, God summoned the famine. And it wasn't an accident. You know, Joseph landed over here and his brothers just happened to be in a, uh, in a famine. No, he summoned the famine on the land. He broke all supply of bread. God made it so that his, Jacob's family was without bread. He sent a man ahead of them. Joseph, who was sold as a slave, his feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. 
The king sent and released him. The ruler of the peoples set him free. That's Pharaoh. He made him lord of his house and ruler of his, Pharaoh's possessions, to bind his princes at his pleasure and to his elders' wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Then Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. Psalm's telling us, you guys remember what God did. Remember the way he providentially, we go, we go tell someone else what God's doing in your life, how God's working in your life. Don't make up stuff. Don't settle for fortune cookie, Christianity, Reader's Digest, 3 a.m. thoughts, versions of what Jesus actually tells us of what Psalms tells us to remember. Go deep, open your Bible and say, sweetheart, your life is terrible. It sounds rough. Let's remember Joseph. Let's remember Christ. What might God be doing even if bad people are doing bad things to you? Much less that you just might not have what you want today. Finally, trust God's goodness in Christ Jesus. Trust God's goodness in Christ Jesus or quit believing the prosperity gospel in your circumstances. I wish you'd probably write the second one down too. Trust God's goodness in Christ. Quit believing the prosperity gospel in your circumstances. Quit it. It's, I feel, I feel the, the Bob Hart sketch coming on here. Stop it. Quit believing that. When we complain and grumble or lose faith in God because of our circumstances, it reveals that we, not Joel Osteen, not just Kenneth Copeland with his demonic eyes on a horse coming to do a conference in Fort Worth this year, not just those guys, but we have come to believe in a prosperity gospel, prosperity ideals about God. That is that we think we deserve and that God ought to and does have plan our health, our wealth, our comfort, and our ease. And that when God takes away our health, or our wealth, or our comfort, or our ease, when God doesn't see to it that our plans are accomplished, when God doesn't see to it providentially that our desires in the flesh are met, we turn on God. What is God up there doing? What is God's plan? I can't imagine what God would do good in this thing. And we think this is bad. God's doing bad things. God must want bad things for me. I guess I have to conclude God doesn't really love me. I can't even really trust God. As if God 
If Joseph can trust God and God can save Israel through Joseph, if Jesus can trust God and God can save sinners through Christ submitting himself to Pilate without saying a word, believe that God may be having your good in mind even when bad things happen through bad people to you. He could do that. This is what Joseph's life means for us. That God does this, that his purposes are accomplished in these inconceivable ways. To close this morning, look at Romans chapter 8 with me. Go first to verse 32. Romans 8, verse 32. Quit believing the prosperity gospel and just enjoy the true gospel. This is such a helpful passage. Sometimes I just confess, I don't like to quote John Piper too much because it sounds like I don't listen to anybody, but John Piper, so I'll just confess. Sometimes when I say one pastor says, sometimes it's Piper. (laughs) It's Piper who said, Romans 8.32 may be the most important verse in the whole Bible. Romans 8.32. He, that's God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Just listen. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, providentially through the sinful acts of sinful men, gave him up for us. How will he not also with him Graciously give us all things. God's not holding his best behind his back. God's not giving us, maybe you've ever been to someone begging on the side of the road, you've got $20 in your pocket, but you give them a quarter. I'm not saying you should, shouldn't. But you don't give them your best. You've got a a whole meal for five in your trunk. You could give them, but you don't. You hold that back. God has given us Christ. What's left? Well, what's back in the storehouse that we can go, well, maybe if we're good, God will give us the rest. No, Jesus is it. If he's given us his son... To be crucified for our sins, what, what, what can we possibly look back and say, God, when I look at these circumstances, it really looks like you're what, holding out on us? No. Quit believing the prosperity gospel. That God's got some better good out there. He's got Ferrari for good people. He's got better houses and better wives and better families for better people. No, he's got Jesus for sinful people, and there's nothing behind God's back that he's holding from us. Quit believing the prosperity gospel. We are in danger of it. Look at a few verses before, Romans 8, 28 through 29. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. This Paul is writing to a church that he knows is suffering, we see through chapter 8. Suffering like Joseph, suffering like Christ. 
We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, make sure you get verse 29 attached to verse 28, or you will use verse 28 to believe the prosperity gospel. He's working together all things for our good. He's giving us all the things. It's not what he's saying. Verse 29. For those, why can I say verse 20, 28? Because verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Suffer like him. Endure like him. Lose the world like him in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers, that we would be conformed to his image, be like him. God is working everything together for our good, but not so that we would have more stuff, not so that we don't ever have to be bothered with traffic, not so that we get every job that we ever wanted, but so that we would finally rid ourselves of sin, be sanctified into being like Christ Jesus. You can know for certain that everything God providentially does in your life, he is seeing to you being made into the image of his son. You don't have to wonder and you don't have to think that God's holding back. Quit believing the prosperity gospel. Trust God's goodness in Christ. He holds nothing back and he's making us like him. So we can sing songs which we have learned for the first time today. Whate'er my God ordains is right. Can you sing it? Can you sing, whatever my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him, I leave it all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your good word to us. Thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. Thank you for your patience with us as we wade through your providence for all of our lives. Thank you for your word which guides us back to things that are true, back to Christ. Father, I pray that this week we would be a people who look at bad people doing bad things even then and see you're a God who can do things for good through that. Would you convict us of that, Father? Help us by your spirit to live in joy this week despite our worst loss in the world, the things of the world. I'll give you just a moment to reflect, to pray on what we sung, what we prayed today, what we preached. Father, thank you. We give you praise. We give you all glory. You don't hold anything back. You've given us Christ. You are sovereign and able and willing to work through the worst scenarios and bring about some good. We give you praise for that, God. We love you. We pray this together in Christ's name. Amen.